Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Let's Talk All Things LGBTQ+. I am Annie McKinnon, your authentic coach, therapist, speaker, writer and podcaster. And if you'd like to learn a little bit more about me, uh, you can go to my website www.coachingcart.com That's cart with a C. Or if you'd like to get in touch with me or even feature on the show, you can reach me at info at coachingcart.com. So in this episode, Jennifer Steele is joining me. Jennifer is a multi-award winning author who lives in Uzbekistan, England and France. And all of her work concerns itself with people who live far from home, either by choice or necessity, as well as with identity, sexuality, how artistic practices help us navigate grief and difficulty and freedom of expression. And I will, of course, put all Jennifer's books and award titles in the description below. So welcome, Jennifer. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you for taking the time out today to record this episode that I know is, before we even start, is going to be really interesting. But I'd like to ask you a question that I ask all my guests, and that is, if I were to give you a superpower right now, what would you want that to be and why? The first thing that I think of when you say that is that I want the power to magically heal people, largely because I've had so many close friends lose small children to cancer, and it is the worst thing imaginable. And so if I could have healed those children, that is what I would most want to do with a superpower. So I, I think that's what I would choose. That is just so beautiful and and really tough, obviously, for the people that, that go through that. So yeah, I love that superpower to heal. Perfect. Okay, so before we started recording, uh, we were having a chat and I get a strong feeling that books are a huge part of your life. Would you like to tell us a bit about that and how that aligns with you as a person? Sure. Um, books have always been a, a huge part of my life. I spent most of my childhood at the public library, which was walking distance from my home. And it was during a time that we really had very little supervision growing up. So we were just set free to do our thing um, as kids. Was it, wasn't that a great time? Yeah, it was <laughs> you know, unfettered. And I think that in a way is why people became writers sometimes. When you have time to develop an imagination and time to, to laze around um, having to entertain yourself. Like if you don't have a bunch of after-school activities lined up and you know all the team sports and the clubs and whatever then you know your brain has more room to kind of go places i feel um i mean you know a mix is is nice but uh anyway so i would walk to the public library and uh again the librarians when i'd finished the books in the children's section had no issue with me at a young age you know taking everything i wanted from the adult section and then carrying as as many books as i could home which tend to be like a stack of 11 and i'd kind of teeter all the way back um so i kind of grew up in books i was i was quite a an awkward shy child and i uh, spent a lot of my time more time in books than i spent mm. in the real world i mean fortunately i had parents that were very outdoorsy and my mother would 
throw me out of the house regularly to keep me from reading all day on the couch. You'd be like, get out of the house, ride your bike, get a breath of fresh air. So yeah, that, that sounds really familiar to me growing up. Uh, obviously, we're all maybe around the same time as yourself. And you look at kids these days, as you say, they're gaming or they've got all these activities all lined up. But back in the day, we really had to think for ourselves and use our imagination. So I'm, I'm curious about what book really stands out for you growing up as a child? Ooh, as a child. Mm. Um, I mean, this is going to sound so pedestrian, but I was obsessed with Nancy Drew as a child. And I realized that I'm, I'm far from unique in that way. Um, I mean, now I read them and I'm like, they're so terribly written, but yet they were so gripping to me as a child. And I think partly because it was a young woman who was very capable and very independent. And that was rare in children's reading material. And I, I wanted to be Nancy Drew. I mean, I, I did lots of play acting of Nancy Drew with my friends and I would never be any other character. I would refuse. I would like, have to be Nancy. Certainly not Bess because she was the, the sissy of the three. You know? <laughs> Yeah, it's that strong woman, that empowered woman that really stood out to you. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's also what gave me nightmares for most of my childhood because mm. I would, you know, I'd think I'd see a jumper hanging in my closet late at night and think it was the phantom horse, you know, <laughs> on its way to haunt me. And but but I do think that Nancy was inspiring to me. I mean, she was in she, you know, she had her own car, she went where she wanted to, she walked into danger when she was told not to. She didn't really obey what anyone else told her to do. And those were- A rebel, a rebel. Yeah, I could admire that. <laughs> I mean, and, and Harriet, Harriet the Spy as well, because Harriet, again, not your typical girl heroine in that she wore whatever the hell she wanted, which was usually just a sweatpants. She didn't spend any time thinking about her hair or like any of those kind of boring things. And she did interesting things with her life, like spy on people. And I spent a lot of my childhood spying on people. We lived down the road from a graveyard and we would hang out there and play there all the time. It was beautiful, it was grassy. Um, and after school, a lot of the teenagers would go there to make out and, and I would spy on them. Okay. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so so what, was that, what was that like? You know, did you go through something in your head? Like, you know, I'm imagining spy you know, and all this uh, planning that needs to be put in place to, I guess, spy on people. So can you talk me a bit, a bit through that? Well, it didn't take too much planning. I just had to take a notebook and a pen with okay. me to the graveyard and, and creep around trying to look innocuous until, and, you know, there were plenty of gravestones to hide behind. So it was kind of the perfect place for spying because there's lots of, lots of things to hide behind. Um, I mean, I still... You know, I, I'm still a huge eavesdropper. I love to, not not on cell phone conversations because those just annoy me, but on regular conversations when there's two people talking in real life. I love listening to those. I, you know, I can't know enough personal things about strangers. And, you know, and the same, like for me, I always remember, I remember when I first, when I left university, I moved to Seattle because I, I was an actor at the time and I went there to kind of start my acting career. And I remember late at night, I'd wander all around the city looking in people's windows, you know, people who owned houses and had bookshelves and, and it looks so cozy in there. And mm. so, you know, I just love seeing how other people live and 
what's mm-hmm. on the walls and yeah I can, I can actually feel an excitement from you when you're talking about that <laughs> and I and what I'm wondering and I'm sure the listeners are are as well back in the day when you were spying in that graveyard were you ever caught I don't think I was I don't know I mean people don't take young girls seriously you know no one would have seen me and thought that I was a spy yeah yeah you know working very hard for mi6 um, in this graveyard in groton massachusetts um yeah oh i absolutely love that so you've got your notepad and your pen so what would you do with that after would you just keep your notes there or look back on them or that's i that's a good question i think i mean i saved them i've never i've never thrown anything i've written away which uh is probably not great but I don't save really anything else I don't care if mm. every single item of clothing I I own disappears tomorrow but I like to make sure I have all my notebooks and journals and everything um I think I still- that's priceless absolutely <laughs> priceless you know to look back on and and be taken into that world of being a child again is yeah priceless yeah 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 I mean actually my I have a 12 year old daughter and when when she was younger, she found one of my very earliest journals where I talked about, you know, this boy I wanted to kiss and then this girl that I thought looked like a frog and, you know, and she just teases me about like the things that she reads in my childhood journal. And I'm like, well, all right, I, I, that, I was five or whoever old I was when I wrote that. Um, <laughs> and is she, is she fallen in the same footsteps as her mom? In some way, she's very, they're, they are non-binary, so they use the pronoun they because they are of the modern generation. Of course, people. yes. Um, so sometimes I slip up, but fortunately they are forgiving. So they are also a reader. We spent a lot of time reading when they were growing up. So every morning for an hour, I would sit and read with her over breakfast. And that was our most intimate time. I mean, bedtime as well. But I loved starting the day with books and having that kind of hour together before, you know, I packed her off to nursery or, you know, so I could work or she went off to school or, or anything else. And in fact, we, we did that until she was 11, until they were 11. Um, so, uh, so I think because of that, and because they never saw a screen until they were 10, it's only because the pandemic kind of forced it on us they developed a love for books and while they are now also on screens uh, a lot of the time for school and outside of school they maintain a love for books which i'm grateful for mm-hmm. and i yeah and so they will recommend books to me because i like to if she if theo loves a book then i want to read it too because then we can talk about it and i love talking about books with my child there was one recent time where they had me read a book that they thought was just the most fantastic book. And then they asked me to rate it. And I, you know, I gave it four out of five stars. And then she said, you know, out of 10. And I said, I don't know, seven. And she said, okay, but why seven? And then I started criticizing it in various ways. And she had an answer for every criticism. She said, well, first of all, you're forgetting who the target audience is. The target audience is eight to 12 year olds. And what you're suggesting would be more appropriate for a YA or an adult novel. And like, she would just have an answer. And I thought, wow, 
and by the end, I said, you know what? You're right. You talked me into it. It is the best book of all time. And every thought I had about it was wrong. I just I I, 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 win an argument with, with my child. So, yeah, but I think that, I mean, how amazing that she asked that question, rate it, and then have that conversation with you uh, over her points and your points that you can have a really, a really good conversation about that. I find that amazing. I appreciate that so much, mm. given that books are pretty much my life. And I mean, which means we have spent a lot of time talking about books over the years. And we're also very critical readers. We, for example, when we were reading Harry Potter, which we both love, but at the same time, we have a lot of criticisms of the Harry Potter books. I mean, we love them. They're magical. However, we have issues with the representation of women. We have issues with the kind of tokenism of, you know, the Indian characters and the kind of one dimensionality of most of the girls and just kind of the sex stereotypes at work in that book and the power structure and the class issues and everything else. And Mrs. Weasley being stuck home cooking while her husband gets to go to the World Cup, things like that struck, struck us as very kind of not forward thinking <laughs> mm. um, yeah so so yeah. so also reading and, and criticizing and and loving the books but mm. they also hit your values by it sounds like yeah i i mean i think it's important to to be able to criticize books and still love them or vice versa to love books and still criticize them because you know the few books are perfect and I don't want to throw out a book just because it has flaws It mm. may have other reasons to read it. But I do think it's important to think about a book with a critical eye so that you're not absorbing media uncritically, because I think that is a problem is that too many people in the world absorb media uncritically. And that is something I hope I pass on to, to Theo is that that ability to read something and then take a look at it and say, well, I love this about it. And these things don't quite work. And this might perpetuate a racist stereotype of, or, you know, a, sexist stereotype or homophobic mm. whatever yeah and then that writes out to the rest of life doesn't it yes which, which is a great a great skill to have i think no matter where we are in life that we're able to look at things and not just take all the fluffy parts of it but go underneath that and and really get to the grit if you like so yeah i really like that as well so you uh, you went to Massachusetts, did you say, to act? Oh, no, so I grew up, yeah, yeah, I went to Seattle to act. I grew up in a small town in Massachusetts till yeah. I was 15. Um, but then after university in Ohio, I moved to Seattle. And then from Seattle to Montana to New York City for 12 years, which is where I lived the longest before I left the U.S. in 2006. And yes, I you moved to London. Well, I actually didn't. I no. um, in 2006, I moved to Yemen to become the editor in chief of a newspaper there. So on my own, uh, moved to Yemen. So yeah, I um, need to hear what the, I need to hear what that was like. Amazing, amazing. The best decision of my entire life. Every other part of my life has unfolded from that moment of landing in Yemen. The old city of Sana'a is the most beautiful city I've ever seen in my life, but almost more importantly, the 
people are the most hospitable, the friendliest, the kindest, the most open people I've ever met in my entire life. And that was not what the media would have led me to believe about that part of the world. They, you know, anytime you see Yemen mentioned in an American newspaper, it was, they're all terrorists, they're all, you know, and, and this was not my experience yeah. of them. Yeah, um, and that's when that questioning comes in, isn't it? When, you know, the media are feeding, feeding us all this information wrongly, mm -hmm. and then you go out there and experience Yemen firsthand. Right. And I th and, and that's that part of what drove me to write my first book, because my first book, unlike my other books, which are novels, my first book was a memoir about running the newspaper there. And the reason I wrote it was because I thought, hang on, like, I want everyone in the US because that's where I'm from originally. I want everyone there to know my Yemeni reporters, and I want them to understand their hopes and dreams and what they're like as individual humans and and our our commonalities and you know the the context that shapes them and everything i just i wanted to share that with with everyone and that was kind of the driving force behind that first book yeah, particularly the, yeah sorry. definitely what definitely one i want to read in fact i think by the end of this episode <laughs> i'll have a list for you to send over yeah, yeah. so that was the start of your writing journey yes well that was that was the start of my yes, it was the start of my professional writing journey, I suppose I had, you know, I'd been writing all my life, but I was an actor first and and then writing slowly took over. Um, I went to grad school for writing and then for journalism and then worked as a journalist for many years. So I had, you know, 15 years as a journalist under my belt, but I hadn't published a book. And so Yemen is gave me my first book. But it, it was also while I was in Yemen running that newspaper that I met the man who would become my husband and where I made some of the closest friends of my life, where my daughter was born, where I started writing my second book. You know, a lot happened. Uh, I was kidnapped. Uh, my husband was attacked by a suicide bomber. So there's like all kinds of stories there. Yeah. Wow. Would you wish to share any of those? Um, sure. Um, if, if they, if you're, if you're, if you're comfortable with that, yeah, I'm yes, sure the yeah. listeners will be interesting, uh, uh, interested. Sure. Um, was there one in particular? <laughs> uh, just when you said kidnapped. That just, oh, right. Oh. So I was pregnant with my daughter, uh, about six and a half months pregnant. And when I lived in Yemen, I went hiking every week, um, with a group of Yemenis for the first few years. And so we hiked all around the mountains outside of Sana'a and in, inside of Sana'a, and I traveled all around the country with various Yemeni and Jordanian friends. I went quite freely everywhere, and I, I never had any trouble. So that was for like three and a half years. Everything was fine. You know, as I said, everyone was completely and utterly lovely, but, you know, everywhere has a few <laughs> bad eggs. So there was one day I was hiking with a new group and it was these women who all had some sort of connection to the French. So there were a lot of them, their husbands worked for the French oil company Total and some of them, one woman simply was French. I can't remember what she did for a living. Mm -hmm. um, so there were five of us on the hike that day, a Norwegian, a Romanian, a Brit, a French woman and me. Did I say Romanian? Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So the five of us had been hiking for about two and a half hours and we'd stopped for lunch and I had a bodyguard by then. Uh, once I married my husband, I was assigned one 
it's much less glamorous than you would think from the movies. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I would think so. I think the reality <laughs> of that would be something very different from the movies. Yeah. I mean, just as a, as a side note, the very first day I ever had a bodyguard. Um, Tim had 10, just to tell you my relative importance to him. The first day I ever had my own bodyguard, we were on a trip and like, and we traveled in this massive armored convoy. And at one point, I really, really, really had to pee, which is like a, you know, chronic problem for me. And I thought, God, if I have to pee, this whole convoy of people are going to have to stop for me. This is, this is mortifying. So I said to Tim, like, I have to pee. What do we do? And he told the driver, um, you know, my wife has to pee. Could we pull over? And then the driver gets on the radio to radio the rest of the convoy. He goes, oh, Madam Ambassador has to pee. And the whole convoy goes, pulls over to the side of the road. And then, you know, my bodyguard hops out with me and of course my husband can't hop out because if he hops out then 10 other guys have to hop out so you know he stays in the car and so I go into this little Yemeni hotel and the bodyguard's with me and I'm thinking I actually don't know the rules here you know where does he stop like does he come into the bathroom with me does he wait outside the door or outside the stall like how does this even work and I had this like moment of panic and I turned to him and I said uh um um and he said oh Oh, no, no, I stay here. <laughs> was, that's anyway, um, this, that was, this, this sounds like a movie. <laughs> I it would make a great movie. Um, and actually that the book that's based on my own kidnapping later was optioned for a television miniseries. But that option has ex expired. So if anyone's interested in that book, it is now again available. Yeah, get that plug in there. Let's get yeah. miniseries <laughs> out there. Yeah, that's the ambassador's wife is that book. So anyway, uh, we were basically, we were, let's see what happened. So we're, we'd been picnicking on our hike and I heard, we heard men shouting, but I mean, the Yemenis kind of talk as if they're shouting a lot of the times, but they're not really shouting. They're just saying, how is your mother? You know, very loudly. That's just the kind of people they are. They're expressive, you know? Um, so uh, shouting didn't alarm me because that's kind of how I communicated with my employees and how they communicated with me. And we shouted at each other all day long. Um, and these, you know, this group of Yemenis had approached our guards. I had one, they had some guards from Total and uh, they had been eating just slightly above us and they were talking to a group of strange Yemenis and I just figured, well, they're sharing their food, which is what usually happened when we picnic. We always shared our food with any Yemenis that passed by and certainly all of our guards did. But then, and I know this can't be right and yet my memory is, because memory is a tricky thing, that I heard the AK-47 cock, like, and that's what made me look up to see that the sheikh, this local sheikh of this area, the leader of the area, had a gun pointed at me. I had an AK-47 pointed at my head. And we kind of scrambled to our feet and started and saying, you know, we're sorry, uh, we didn't want to mishkala, we didn't want a problem. We, we figured maybe we were trespassing accidentally and we would get off of their land immediately but then my bodyguard said you need to come here and while it's counterintuitive to walk towards someone holding a gun on you I was trained to do everything my bodyguard told me to at all times so sure. I did um so I walked towards the man with the gun and I was the only one of the five of us who spoke any Arabic so you know I said salam alaikum to him, you know, I, I come in peace. And the response to that is alaikum salam. And if you don't alaikum salam someone, it means that you mean them harm. Okay. And so the sheikh did not respond. And it is the only time in my four years in Yemen that someone did not respond 
with alaikum salam. And my bodyguard was very upset by this because he, he's Yemeni. Um, and he said, you know, what? Why didn't you alaikum salam her? Like, this is not how we treat women. This is not how we treat pregnant women and blah, blah, blah. And the sheikh, he didn't see me. I mean, I, I don't know if like when you look in the eyes of someone who um, is mentally ill and you can kind of tell that they are not capable of seeing you as a human, like they just don't see you as you are or recognize your humanity. And I looked into this man's eyes and he had these very green eyes, like I've never kind of experienced. Like, and it was chilling to me. That was, that was the most terrifying moment because I thought, actually, I'm not, I don't register as human with him. I don't think he's entirely well. And he does not, he, it wouldn't bother him in the least if mm. he were to kill me. Wow, how terrifying that must have been. Um, yes. And in a way, being pregnant is what forced me to calm down because I think, I, you know, I would have been, I was freaking out. I mean, I'm not going to lie. It was, <laughs> I was completely losing my mind inside. But I also started having contractions and I thought stress brings on premature labor. And if I don't find a way to calm down, I'm going to give birth to this child in the middle of Yemen prematurely where there's no medical care for her and I can't lose her. I can't. And then I thought, okay, well, I'm not good at calming down. What do I know how to do? Like how, what would help me? And then I thought, well, I'd done a lot of yoga when I was pregnant and I thought, okay, well, the only thing I know how to do is like yoga breathing, like Ujjayi breathing. And so I started doing that and just kind of doing a mantra to her, which was basically just stay in, you know, stay in, stay in, stay where you are, it's safe there, you know, just stay. Cause I thought there's, there will be no point in surviving this if I lose her. And that helped me calm down. And also the other women were amazing. The other women were unbelievably good. They, no one freaked out. They were calm. They were protective of me because I was pregnant. Um, a lot of them had been held at gunpoint before because they lived all over the world. And they just couldn't have been, they were the right people to be kidnapped yeah. with. <laughs> um, I'd recommend them to anyone. Yeah. Um, if you're going to get kidnapped, yeah. get this crowd. Yeah. And so, I mean, I, I don't want to drag this on forever, but, I, you know, eventually I used the Romanian's woman to call my husband who was not supposed to be able to answer his phone because he usually has to leave it outside the embassy, but he happened to be having a meeting in our house um, and answered his phone and he happened to have security people in the house with him from the Yemeni government. And so, you know, everyone, he mobilized everyone. Um, once I rang, it was like I, you know, he's trained to deal with crisis. So... The second I told him what had happened and where we were, he was like, okay, right. Put Muhammad on the phone. You know, where are you? Do you have a you know, sat phone, blah, blah, blah. You know, he was straight to business, no sentimentality, no, oh, sweetheart, how terrible for you. None of that, you know, just like, just all get right. on it. Yeah. Get on it. Yeah, yeah, get on it, which I appreciate. I mean, at the time I was like, wait, but shouldn't you be being like, I love you. I hope you don't <laughs> die. But no, no, there was none of that. <laughs> all he was thinking of is just saving you. How, how amazing. So that is how that ended? Did they just yeah. leave? Well, no. I mean, there was a long negotiation process that lasted several hours. And with the Minister of the Interior calling the Sheikh, and I don't, we don't actually know what bargain was struck in the end mm. to convince him to let us go. There were a few false starts where he said, okay, you guys can go, and then changed his mind and brought us back. 
at one point they tried to corral us in a house and we were walking really slowly because we did not want to be stuck in a house that seemed like a bad idea and then anyway so it took a long time and then finally like when they said we could go I, we were power walking like we've yeah. never power walked before you know my my bodyguard said you know you, you have to you must move fast and i was like way ahead of him you know i was like you don't need to tell me twice i am yeah. so out of here well, yeah. what a story and i think listeners will be thinking well what does this have to do with us let's talk all things lgbtq plus oh right, but right no right. no but i'm just asking the listeners bear with we we're getting there we're getting there we but are, we are, I, yeah. I think that was just such an amazing story to to pass up and not give people the opportunity to hear so thanks for sharing that jennifer anytime yeah yeah so uh you're in London, and you've started your own writing journey. Yes. What was yes. next? Um, what's next? Did you say? What, what was next? Oh, what, what was next? next? After Yemen? After you arrived in London and started your writing journey? Well, all right. So we've been in, I've been in and out of London for a long time. Actually, I was in London in 1989 to study theater. And then which was an interesting year to be in London. And then uh, once I met Tim, I was after Yemen and Jordan, where we were briefly, I, we were in London for th three years and I did a lot of freelance journalism while working on my first novel. Then we were in Bolivia for four years and then London for three years and then Uzbekistan, which is actually where I'm supposed to be now. I am now British, you can't tell by the way I speak. But I do have a British passport and my husband is, has a job in Uzbekistan. So we're living there and that's where I've been working and writing and uh, where my daughter is in school. But I had, I was evacuated almost a year ago for medical reasons and um, I'm in treatment for ovarian cancer. So yeah, I think we all were, um, sorry to hear yeah, but, yeah. Um, but so far things are going well. I've had surgery. I've had my first rounds of chemo. I go back to chemo in October. Mm -hmm. um, so the toughest part has been being apart from my family for most of that time because, again, they're in Tashkent. Sure. Um, no, totally understand that, but also glad to hear that things are going well. Well, I think writing has been what I've leaned on the most to kind of keep me sane during this whole time. I, you know, the, the second thought I had when I was first diagnosed was, oh God, please, I don't want to write a cancer memoir. Please don't make me have to write a cancer memoir. Uh, I don't want to write about cancer. There's a lot of cancer memoirs. They're very good. You know, we don't need mine. But then it seemed that the only, every time I tried to write anything else, I ended up writing about what was happening to me and the kind of person it was changing me into. And, so now I've got hundreds of pages about my cancer journey. So I don't know, I might have to write a cancer memoir and I don't know how my agent will feel about that, but yeah. Yeah, but I imagine putting it out there will help lots of other people, similar situation. I hope so. I mean, I hope, I mean, I have some, you know, I have a blog on a Caring Bridge site, you know, where it's the site that's for you to keep in touch with your family and friends who wanna know how you're doing when you're too sick to send 500 emails or whatever. So I've been posting lots of stuff there, probably too much. <laughs> I, I don't think they would agree with you in that sense. Uh, I think from their point of view, it'll never be 
be too much. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I go on rants about things that are unrelated to cancer, like gender and children's clothing and uh, sexuality or the way boys are raised, you know, things like my, my own. Yeah. Favorite. Get, get on thoughts <laughs> and yeah. Feelings about stuff, which is great. Yeah. So, yeah. So in terms of the LGBTQ plus uh, community, where do you fit into that? So I, I consider myself bisexual. I, when I was growing up as a young adolescent, um, I assumed I was straight simply because I didn't know any people who were openly gay. I grew up in a small town in Massachusetts. And also I hadn't fallen in love with a girl. Mm. I had had crushes on boys. And so I thought, okay, I guess I'm straight, you know, but it's not really until you fall in love with someone special that you realize, oh, Okay, yeah, maybe what, what happened there? Right. <laughs> like, you know, being interested in girls doesn't mean you're interested in all of them, does yeah, it? So, absolutely. The same way if you're interested in men, you're not interested right. in all of them. Yeah. Right. Totally agree. Absolutely. Um, and and so it wasn't until my freshman year in college when I ended up living with a girl I'd actually been at high school with and I just fell madly in love with her. And it took me a long time to realize I was madly in love with her because I thought I just wanted to be her. But really I was just, I just wanted to be with her kind of all the time. I didn't want to be with anyone else. She was like, you know, but she unfortunately was entirely straight. And then I thought, all right, well, what do I do? Like now that I know that there's at least one woman I've fallen in love with, like, are there others? And mm -hmm. I was quite timid about exploring that because there were, I'm trying to think what it was called back then. I think it was just LGBT, but it was mostly lesbians and gay men. And I didn't really know any other bisexuals. And I thought to be a lesbian, I had to look a certain way. And then I thought, well, what if I'm not a lesbian and I'm just bisexual? Like, will the lesbians hate me then and not want to yeah. date me? And, and you know. Isn't, isn't that so interesting, though? We talk about conditioning a lot what we've been led to believe, what we value, but it doesn't matter where we are in life or what we're involved in, that condition, conditioning still stays there. Like I've heard like bisexual people say, you know, that they're ostracized from the community because they are bi and why can't you choose and you're being greedy, you know. And for me, <laughs> I, have, I have a real, real struggle with conditioning in general. I just think, why can't we just be who the hell we are? You know, what are all these boxes about and all these labels about that? Yeah, you're right. You you fell in love with a woman and why not? You, you fell in love with a man and why not? You know, what is the big deal that other people think that is not allowed? Right. And I mean, I had one boyfriend leave me because I was bisexual and we'd been together for like a year and a half. And so he'd known this the entire time. Right. And he said, well, you know, I, I can't really have a future with you because you might leave me for a woman. And I said, I could leave you for a man. Yeah. Like, what is the difference? Like, I could leave you. I'm going to leave you. I'm going to leave you because I want to leave you. Not yeah, necessarily no. to go to someone else. Like, you know, um, and it just it makes no sense to me at all. One of the first women who I had, who was my girlfriend, um, who did reciprocate my affections, she was an Argentine woman. And she, I remember the first time she picked me up, this is when I was in Manhattan. We were in, you know, she was directing me in a play for a lesbian theater company. 
and uh, she was she's amazing. She's just amazing and brilliant and creative and everything else. And so she's kind of a rock star in like the alternative theater scene in, in New York. And so anyway, she was driving me to her house in the Bronx to make me dinner. And I was pretty excited because that's that's a pretty risky first date, you know. Mm. Um, and we were driving there and she asked for my coming out story. And I said, well, you know, my I come from these like radically liberal parents who I never really had to come out to. I mean, I I told them when I started dating women and whatever, told them I was bisexual or, and she, she pulled the car over and said, I don't date bisexuals. And I said, well, okay, I could lie, but I don't really think that's a great way to start a relationship. I mean, I don't, I can't just erase the people I've been with and I can't, you know, I'm really interested in you right now. And that's, that's honest. That's transparent. Yeah. You know? that's how it is in that moment. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, I was so scared for so long that I think I was 30 before I really, you know, kissed a girl in a meaningful way. Mm. Woman, sure. it would have been by then a woman. And then, you know, I spent, there was a time where I, I just did exclusively date women mm. because I thought, actually, I'm just kind of done with men in general. Like, you know, they screwed up the planet. They screwed up everything. I, I just don't want to hang out with them. You know, it was just, I'm and done. I, yeah, I'm done. And I love all these women and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, then I moved to Yemen and met my husband who is wonderful. And, you know, my most recent novel, Exile Music, was a finalist for the Lambda Literary Lesbian Fiction Award. Congratulations. Um, yeah. Wow. And, you know, I have a husband who got up at four in the morning with me to watch the ceremony because, you know, I said to him right early on in our courtship that, look, this is my sexuality. It's not going to change. That's who I am. And if you have any issue with that, just tell me now so that we don't like go through all this and then you suddenly have an issue. Sure. Um, and, he, and he just has never had an issue, um, which is probably why we're still together, you know, yeah. He trusts it, me. It, it, it sounds like he's confident in himself, but the most important thing is he trusts you. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I, I would guess that's because you are honest, you are upfront, and you see it how it is, uh, giving him the opportunity at the beginning to say, well, no, I can't handle that. But he's taking that on, and you're married. So, yeah, that's so sweet and lovely. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. You know, marriage is a um, is a a complicated and you know dense relationship. It sure <laughs> so, is, yeah. Um, but if you've got that open communication already, then personally, I think you're halfway there. That if you can just be honest with each other, no matter what it is you need to say. Um. So yeah, credit for that. I would. I would not. I'm a really terrible liar. I, I'm really terrible. And I also have the kind of face that gives me away when I don't want it to. I've had people tell me like, you know, it was really clear that you don't like so-and-so because we can tell by looking at your face. And, and I, you know, when I haven't even realized. And so I just, I have to be in a relationship where I can be honest because if, if not, then I'm just going to get myself in trouble or like, you know. Yeah, constantly. Make, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and fortunately, I mean, Tim is, he's like, he just trusts me. He trusts me to go off on to writing residencies with other writers and artists for a month at a time and, and doesn't worry that I'm going to run off with one of them. 
And, you know, most of the critical relationships in all of my books are among women, just because, I don't know, I just, it's a, in my writing life, I'm really not that interested in exploring heterosexual sex, or it's just, I think that's been done a lot. <laughs> yeah, you're, yeah, you're right. It has. It's, been, it's done over and over and over. And I'm sure, you know, people in the community appreciate that books are, are now coming off, that coming out, that explore, you know, that those different relationship styles, those different, you know, sexual relationships, that it's a lot more open. I love it. I think it's great. Yeah. Can I tell you about a couple of books that I really love? You can. Because that seemed like a good segue. <laughs> uh, um, there's a book uh, by Elaine Castillo, um, who is an American Filipina author. And she wrote a book called America is Not the Heart. Um, that is, it starts off in the Philippines, but largely takes place in the Bay Area um, of California. And it is so exquisitely written. It is so beautiful and has some of the most erotic scenes I've ever read between women. But also her character, um, she never uses the word bisexual anywhere in the book. Her protagonist just cavalierly sleeps with both men and women and doesn't feel a need to defend that decision. And that felt so freeing to me that like her sexuality is never even an issue. It's just like, she doesn't explain it. She doesn't say, mm -hmm. well, here's why I'm bisexual. You know, I like men and I like women and blah, blah, blah. She just sleeps with everyone. And mm -hmm. that's the way it is. And then she, you know, falls in love with a woman. Uh, but it's such an amazing book. And it, it just felt really freeing for me because I haven't read that many beautiful, literary, meaningful, rich novels with someone with a sexuality like that. And another one in a completely different way that I really loved recently is called Confessions of the Fox by Jordi Rosenberg, I hope okay. I'm getting that right, who is a trans writer. And the, it's based on the true story of this thief named Jack, kind of on the premise that Jack had been born a biological female and then taken on a male identity and has this relationship with a prostitute and a lot of the power in the society lies with the prostitutes in this bordello and like they you know can hide people and and whatever and it's such a fascinating book because of all the things it does with gender and sexuality and you know and kind of it doesn't feel forced to define everything it's just fluid and people are having sex with all kinds of people and and being who they are yeah yeah and i like it i like it when it's messy and when the borders are per permeable you know i like that i mean in there are times where i'm like should i even call myself bisexual because the word bisexual does sound binary in a way like i like these two things but nothing in between which probably isn't true so then i think well maybe i should just call myself a pansexual or an omnisexual yeah. or, just, or maybe just call yourself by your name yeah, I'm a Jennifer. You know, I'm Annie. You know, and <laughs> yeah. from from there, nothing else should matter. Yeah. In my opinion, nothing else should matter. But here we are in 2022, and that's the way the world's evolving. So let's go with it and see where we end up. 
I was just gonna say, well, that's that's true in our countries. Um, but you know, I've been living in Uzbekistan where it's illegal to be gay only if you're a man. And interesting. Yes, it's illegal to engage in male sodomy, basically. So I wonder if the reason they haven't bothered making a law about lesbian sex is that they can't imagine <laughs> sex without a man or women just aren't important enough to make a law about. Yes, about both. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, the hardest thing for me as a parent is, you know, I've got a 12 year old who's an adolescent coming into their sexuality and all. And we're very open in our family talking about all of this, right? And we talk about this all the time, but she's, Theo is in a classroom with people who have extremely conservative religious beliefs, who are extremely homophobic. And, you know, I want Theo to feel completely comfortable no matter what their sexuality is, but I also, I have to say, look, like a lot of the kids in your class aren't going to get it and it could endanger you here. Yeah. yeah. So like, yeah, be out and proud in London, but not in New York, but not. Not there. No. Yeah. Oh, because the consequences of that are just too horrendous to think about, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. And so that's been really tricky to navigate because you don't want to imbue your child. I mean whatever their sexuality is, you don't want to imbue them with a sense of shame or that they have to hide themselves. But then again, you want them to stay alive in the country you're living in. And we've lived in like three extremely homophobic countries. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, this sounds a, a good place to ask you, what message would you like to leave our listeners with? Right. I think my message for listeners is, I've been thinking a lot about hope recently and how we maintain hope in the face of everything that's going on in the world. And I, you know, I'm no guru. I don't have, you know, particularly great wisdom about these things, but I know that for me personally, the only way I can feel hope is by taking action. Mm -hmm. um, and so I guess I would encourage listeners to think, okay, if we don't have a habitable planet for our children and their children, no other issue will matter. And so I feel that climate for me at least is number one and that we each need to figure out whatever actions we can take, whatever they are, and take them now. So I guess that's kind of one of the things that's really pressing on my mind. Sure. Uh, and I really like that, you know, if we don't take care of the, the planet, then nothing else will matter because it won't be here. Basically. Or we won't be here. Or we won't be here. Yeah, we definitely won't yeah. be here. Yeah. yeah. So if listeners want to get in touch with you, Jennifer, how can they do that? Listeners can find me on Twitter at JFStyle7. So that's J as in Jennifer, F as in Florence, and then my surname is S-T-E-I-L. So J-F-S-T-E-I-L. And then um, I'm also on Facebook. So you can just look for my name. I'm also on Instagram, Jennifer F. Style, I think is my handle there. And I have a website, jenniferstyle.net, and you can contact me through there as well. That's great. And uh, you will, of course, send me that information with your links, which I'll well, put in the description. And I'd also love you to send your book recommendations because I'm sure listeners have been like me thinking, I want to read that. 
So if you send those through as well, I'll put them in the description so that people uh, can can read the books and get in touch with you. Great. I will definitely send those to you. Thank you, Jennifer. I have to say this has been an absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed this episode and thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much. It, it's really been fun. Yeah, yeah it, it, it really has. It's just a conversation, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd like to thank, thank the listeners and tune in next Monday for the next episode of Let's Talk All Things LGBTQ+. Thank you.